Over the last two weeks, we have done some interesting things. We've looked at the doctrine of predestination, and we have seen how predestination moves us, compels us to participate in the life and the mission of God in the world. And in looking at those two things, we have moved from 30,000 feet to a little bit lower ceiling, maybe 15,000 feet, but today we're going to ground level. I want us to look at what it means to personify the virtues of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. One of the things we will see through the course of this passage is that the Spirit of God is teaching us in this passage of Scripture how we can embody the virtue of Christ with our mouth, our hands, and with our hearts. And so let's take that to heart today as we find very practical ways to display the virtues of Christ in our lives. We might say that this passage of Scripture gets down to the nitty-gritty. And while you might have been able to dodge predestination for some theological quirk, or you might have even been able to excuse yourself from participation saying, well, that's too big for me, you can't hide from this. The Spirit is getting into our lives and calling us to put off the old man and to put on the new man. That is to get out of Adam and get into Christ and to not imitate Adam any longer, but to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. And what this requires us to do is to think and feel and act in ways that are, as one commentator put it, consistent with our new identity in Christ. Another way to put it is that we are being called by the Spirit to flesh out our baptism, to embody the love of Christ with our hands, with our hearts, with our mouths. And so as St. Paul makes very clear in this passage, We are God's dearly loved children, and we are called to imitate God the Father because we've been adopted into his family, and now that we are members of his family as sons and daughters, we're learning the household rules. This is what our Father wants us to do, and so let us pay very close attention to these rules. There are some traditions in the Christian community that treat the Christian faith as if it were all a head game. And the idea is that if you have the right set of uh, propositions in your head, if you have the right systematic theology in your head, that's as far as you need to go. But we see in listening to Christ and the apostles that it's never, ever a head game. Our theology must work its way out to the very fingertips of our hands and down to our toes, and it involves all of our bodies. As Paul says in another place, we are, in light of God's mercies, we are called to offer our bodies to God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And so we present ourselves to God, body and soul, and say, do, you, do your will, do what you want me to do, help me do what you want me to do with my body in this world. Well, by now, you are probably aware of the renowned clinical psychologist and internet sensation, Jordan Peterson. And without weighing in one way or the other on uh, what I personally think about him, I do want to highlight something that is very curious and interesting about this phenomenon. Jordan Peterson, for many people, has become a kind of surrogate father, a father that many young men in our generation feel like they don't have. There's a kind of father hunger at work in our world where 
young men and even older men feel lost and adrift. They don't have direction. They don't know what to do with themselves. And along comes Jordan Peterson writing books like 12 Rules for Life and maybe 12 more rules for life. And there might even be more rules after that. But the point is, he's writing these rules for life in what he considers to be an antidote to the chaos of the world around us. And what strikes me as interesting about this is you see that so many young men have been attracted by him, have gravitated towards him because they find in him someone who is giving them clear direction in life. Whether you like his rules for life or not is not the point right now. The point is that people are saying, show me the way to live. In the Christian community, we often turn our noses up at the idea of rules and regulations because we consider that all to be just a matter of religion or fundamentalism, and we don't need rules because we're under grace, and grace lets us do whatever we want to do, we kind of make up our own rules as we go. Until you read the apostles' writings and you find out that they are chock full of rules. And here in Ephesians 4, the apostle Paul comes to us as a spiritual father laying down household rules by which we must live. If we are the children of God living in the household of God, these are some clear rules by which we must live. What he's essentially doing is taking the last five commandments from the Ten Commandments and he he tweaks them in a way that he can apply them to the church. So you're going to hear him talk about lying, bearing falsehood. You're going to hear him talk about uh, other ways to obey God. And so get your hearts and minds around this, that what you're about to hear are not 12 rules for life, but perhaps many more rules for life. And very specifically talking about rules for the way we must use our mouths, the way we must use our hands, and fundamentally the way we must use our hearts. For it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks, and it's out of the overflow of the heart that the hands work. And so with that in mind, let us move into this passage of Scripture where Paul talks to us about ways to use our mouth, our hands, and our hearts. And along the way, what he does is he sets up contrasts. And so you get the contrast is that the old man uses his mouth one way, the new man uses his mouth in another way. The old man uses his mouth to curse and condemn, to spread falsehoods, to, to lie, to cheat, to deceive. He uses his mouth to undermine the truth of God in the world. That's what the old man does. The old man wants to lie and bear false witness. He wants to do things to deceive and trick others. And we'll get into why in just a moment. But the root of it is he's acting like his father, Adam. Whenever we lie, whenever we don't tell the truth, whenever we omit facts, what we're doing is acting like our father, Adam. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden when the serpent first deceived Eve and then Eve seduced her husband. You see that they lied and tricked and deceived each other and tried to deceive the Lord and what have we been doing? Well, we've been lying to ourselves and lying to one another in thought, word, and deed ever since. It's just in us. It's in our DNA. We tell half-truths. We omit facts. We fudge details. We embellish stories. We spin facts in order to do what? In order to elevate ourselves above others, 
in order to denigrate people around us, to make them seem worse than they are, to make ourselves seem better than we are, or maybe we're just trying to protect some illusion of grandeur that we have generated for ourselves. Lying is built into us. It is the language of the devil. And we come into the world speaking that language in a variety of ways. St. Augustine says, here is the terrible thing about lying. St. Augustine says, the mouth that lies destroys the soul. And it's not just the soul of those who hear the lies, but it is also the soul of the one who is telling the lies. We must learn to tell the truth. And yet the old man wants to lie and deceive and trick And then it wants to add corruptive speech to it. Because lying isn't enough. It needs to be filled with other things. And so this corruptive speech comes in. The word in Greek means rotten or putrefied. Now if you've been in the religious or Christian community long enough, and by long enough I mean like for five minutes, then you know that Corruptive speech usually gets categorized in a specific way that it has to do with a certain set of four-letter words that anyone who uses those four-letter words, whatever they are, however long that list is, then what people are saying is, oh, those are the corruptive words. Those are the bad words that we shouldn't say. Those are the words that will be filtered out by mom and censored by uh, television networks. That is not what Paul has in mind here. I'm not suggesting that you kids run off and learn all those words and use those words. I'm simply saying that Paul has something deeper in mind here. And I'll give you an example of this. If you go again back to the Garden of Eden, one of the most corruptive sets of words you could ever hear come from the serpent who didn't use any of those four-letter words that your moms and teachers don't want you to use. The serpent simply said, did God really say? Did God really say? And that set off a series of deceptions, a series of disobediences, a series of trouble for all of us. Did God really say? That is the kind of corruptive speech that Paul has in mind. And so if you looked at, for example, all of, uh, all of Ephesians, and then you looked at the writings of First and Second Timothy, where Paul is writing to the pastor of the church at Ephesus, you would learn that what Paul has in mind is falsehood and false doctrines and myths and in endless genealogies and irreverent babble and foolish and ignorant controversy and on and on we could go. There's a kind of speech that destroys the truth. Destroys the soul. Why? Because it undermines the truth of God. The old man uses his mouth in that way, but the new man uses his mouth in a different way to speak the language of God, which is the truth. The language of God is the truth. And Jesus came to speak the truth, and his apostles speak the truth, and it's not just your truth. Like, you have your truth, and I have my truth, and I'm just speaking my truth against your truth. It's not that sort of thing. We're not talking about a relativized truth. We're talking about the truth that is rooted and grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, use your new mouth as a new man to speak the truth of Christ to one another 
Because when you speak the truth of Christ to one another, you're speaking the language of God. It's a language we need to learn. And we learn it with the help of the Spirit. We learn it with the help of our pastors and our parents. We learn to speak the truth of God to each other. Now, that doesn't mean we go around preaching to each other all the time or just quoting Bible verses to us in our conversations, or to ourselves in conversations. Uh, it means that our language, our speech, is being shaped and framed, seasoned by God's Word so that we speak in constructive ways, in ways that build each other up in Christ, in ways that help each other move forward in our walk with Jesus, in ways that encourage one another and lift each other up. You see, the, man, the old man uses his mouth to denigrate and destroy others, but we use our mouths to elevate and edify others, and we do that in Christ. But notice there is a caveat here. Caveat is a fancy way to say there's a word of caution here. We do this as fits the occasion, as fits the occasion. All truth is God's truth, but under some circumstances, some truths are not as relevant as other truths. you got to sort through that. It takes wisdom. We know that a word aptly spoken can edify and encourage others, but we also know that there is a time and place for everything under heaven. So there is a time for a word of wisdom, instruction, advice. There's also a time for rebuke and warning and correction. St. Gregory the Great wrote a fantastic work called The Pastoral Rule. This is centuries ago in the early church. And he spends dozens of pages in his book talking about this principle as fits the occasion. In fact, there's a whole book within that book written on this point. And his point is that there is no one-size-fits-all way to speak the truth to each other. That we need to use wisdom and discretion. We need to understand to whom we are speaking and about what we are speaking. Or as my wife has said to me on many occasions, you don't have to say everything you know. <laughs> we must learn to adapt and to adjust our speech. I'm not talking about altering the truth or changing the truth. It's about learning which truth needs to be spoken at this time. Let me give you a couple of examples. You come across someone that has just lost a loved one. You might be tempted to say something like this. God works all things for the good of those who love him. Don't worry about it. Don't grieve like the pagans do, who have no hope. Now, both of those statements are true in and of themselves, but they are not the right thing to say to someone who has just lost a loved one. It doesn't fit the occasion. You come across someone in the middle of a marital crisis, and they're having a hard time holding it together. And you know what? The marriage might not make it. That is not the right time for you to remind them that the Bible says God hates divorce. That's a true statement in and of itself, but it doesn't fit the occasion. 
You know what the best thing to say to someone who has just lost a loved one is, or the best thing to say to your friend in the midst of a marital crisis is? Sometimes it's nothing at all. It's better to listen. Better to say, oh, I can't imagine how that must feel. Your presence is enough, and your silence is golden. We don't have to use every word we have. We don't have to say everything we know. We have to learn to speak in a way that fits the occasion. So figure out what that is. And the Spirit will help you do that. As Gregory the Great points out, a word that might profit one person actually injures another person. And the word that might destroy someone might be a word that actually helps someone else. You just have to know when and where to use it, as fits the occasion. So we're talking about speaking the truth in love, and it's a truth that is framed and shaped, seasoned by the Word of God. Now let's talk about the use of our hands. Use of our hands. The old man uses his hands in one way. The new man uses his hands in another So the old man uses his hands to maybe strike others in anger uh, and clamor or to steal or maybe just to be slothful and lazy. The old man uses his hands in this context. The primary thing Paul talks about is to steal. And there's more than one way to steal. There's more than one way to take things that do not belong to you. So we need to be careful how we approach this. Like we might approach life and say, or approach this passage and say, well, I don't steal. Other people steal, but I don't. But think about what it means to steal. Stealing looks like this. You steal by not working as hard as you ought to work. You steal by not giving or tithing, making your offerings as much as you ought to, as often as you ought to. By not paying your bills as you ought to pay them, or by not sharing your personal resources with others, by robbing others of joy and dignity. Maybe you use your hands to abuse and hurt others, to shame them. Maybe it's about withholding love and forgiveness. As that cultural prophet Bono used to sing, the hands that build can also pull down, even the hands of love. So we have to be careful how we use our hands and what we're doing with our hands. On this point about theft, one of the concerns that God has had throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament is the way his people handle the resources he entrusts to their care and the stewardship with which they handle them. I want to point out, and this is not a guilt trip to any of you, but it is something for all of us to consider, that studies show that about... In the United States, if you look at the church across the board, American Christians give an average of about 3% of their income in tithes and offerings. Now, the Lord requires more of us than that, doesn't he? He requires 100% of all that we are and all that we have. But let's ask ourselves, what are we doing with our hands and how are we using the resources that God has given us? Some people are miserly and want to keep everything in a tight fist and hold it for themselves, but others are more generous. And when you see a generous person, you know that this is a new man in Christ who has been moved by the Spirit to use his resources and steward his gifts as Christ would. And that's what Paul gets on about when he says, there's a different way to use your hands. 
You use your hands to labor and to work and to share. Why? Because you're imitating God who made the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Yes, work is hard, but work was in the world before the fall came. Work is a gift. And God encourages us to work, but he also encourages us to rest at the right time. The reason work is so hard for us now is because sin is in the world. And because sin is in the world, yes, it's harder to earn a living. It's harder to earn that bread and make that keep. It's harder to make them ends. And because of that, we're tempted to hold everything close to our chest and with a tight fist because we don't want to lose it and we don't want to give it up and we don't want others to reap the benefit of our hard work. And yet Paul says your motive for working is what? Not so you can lay up that golden nest egg at the end of your life. Not so that you can go on all the amazing vacations you've ever planned. He says, you need to work hard with your hands. You need to labor at it. Why? So that you will have something to share with others. Think about that. So that you will have something to share. It's more blessed to give than receive. And so we work hard because it helps us to accumulate things that we can then distribute to others. Give to those who have need. Just imagine how much more this congregation or the church across the board could do if the people of God grew in their generosity, grew in the obedience to God's word, to these rules of life. Think of all the needs that could be met among the poor, of all the mission work that could be accomplished, of all of the things that God's people could do if we learned to be more generous, not only in our tithes and offerings, but in our personal life, just giving to others as the Lord has given to us. So for those of you who work, you might feel like you're at in some dead-end job and you're not sure if it matters. It does matter. It matters because when you work, you're imitating God, and when you give, you're imitating God even more. Now let's look at the way we use our heart because this is the foundational issue, isn't it? The way we use our heart is what drives the way we use our mouths and our hands. And what you have here is a new man and an old man. The old man uses his old stony heart in one way, but the new man uses his new spirit-filled heart in a different way. And so the old man takes his heart, and what does he do? He has a fortress built up because it's a hard, stony heart, and he's kind of trapped inside of himself. Nothing gets in. The light doesn't get in. He doesn't feel anything for others except for what he generates in his heart. And what Paul does is characterize that for us. Listen to how he says uh, this, this man's heart is. There's bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander with all malice. These are horrible sounding words. And if you put all of that in one heart, you think, how can that one person, how can anyone bear all of that in their heart? But that's what an old heart generates towards others. Anger and bitterness and wrath, slander, all of that is there. Commentators describe bitterness in this way, the resentful spirit that refuses reconciliation. Irritable state of mind that keeps a man in a perpetual state of animosity. And then you get to wrath and rage. And what do you have there? Surface level temporal passions that explode in volcanic bursts. They flash and then they fade in just a moment. Shannon and I learned many years ago in some parenting book that we read 
about uh, the terrible twos and what to expect. And you know what terrible twos do, right? They throw fits of rage. We don't call it that. We say they're just so um, strong-willed, right? (laughs) They're throwing fits of rage. They drum their heels on the floor, and we don't like that. And so we try to tamp that down, throw cold water on it, and get rid of that any way we can. We don't tolerate it. At least we shouldn't. But what happens when you get into your 20s or your 30s or maybe your teenage years and you're throwing these fits of rage? You're not drumming your heels on the floor, but you're lashing out at everyone, saying things you shouldn't say that you don't really mean. Fits of rage. And what you're doing is harming yourself and harming others around you because now your heart has become this nuclear reactor that's melting down. And when it melts down, well, it comes out in all kinds of ways. The misuse of your hands, misuse of your mouth. That's where you get all the shouting and the raving, the screaming, the yelling that's associated with clamor and brawling. I know that some of you grew up and had that experience in your homes, and maybe some of you still do. God forbid you still might have it. But it's not right. These are the things that the Spirit of God is driving away from us. One commentator describes this clamor and brawling in this way. He says, it's the loud self-assertion of the angry man who makes everyone hear his grievance. He just has to be heard. He has to let everyone know what he thinks and feels about every little thing, every little injustice, every little cutoff in traffic. It results in speaking evil of others, insulting them. And all of this is fueled by malice, which is a source of these other vices. The old man with a stony heart holds people hostage. He wants to exact revenge. He wants them to get what they deserve for what they've done against him not necessarily against the Lord or anyone else, but he has been offended. And so he builds builds up this fortress around his heart, and he harbors all of that within. The man with a new heart and a new spirit is different. He's kind, he's tenderhearted, and he's forgiving. Kindness is so underrated in our day. Sadly to say, kindness is so underrated in the Christian community. Mothers teach their little boys to be nice, and older men will say, he's going to become a doormat if he's nice. People are going to walk all over him. He needs to toughen up. We see someone shed a tear, and we think, what's their problem? They need to suck it up. The world's hard. And here the Spirit is saying the exact opposite. No, you need to be kind. You need to be tender-hearted, vulnerable. Allow yourself to feel what other people feel. Allow yourself to be moved by the troubles in the world, by the joys in the world. Tender-hearted and forgiving. And this forgiving is so difficult. It's so difficult. I don't have any trouble with all the rest of the things I've said, but... <laughs> That's a lie. Uh, (laughs) Forgiving is hard. Forgiveness is the free exercise of grace. 
I don't do this every morning, but I do it as often as I can. I still like discipline, but I like to do morning prayer. And one of the struggles of morning prayer is not simply that it happens in the morning, which is a struggle, but it's the fact that when you do morning prayer, the Lord's Prayer comes up. And there's that beautiful line, no matter how you say it, forgive us our sins, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our debts. That's the beautiful part. The difficult part where yours truly stumbles every time is this. As we also have forgiven those who sin against us. Those who trespassed against us. Those who owe us something. Those who have infringed upon our rights or crossed the borders that we set up. The boundaries that we establish for ourselves. So difficult to express Grace freely to people who have wronged you so deeply. And yet, if you have a new heart, you strive for it at least. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. In summary, what Paul says is this. You can take all of those rules that we just explored and touched on and summarize them in this. Here's the rule. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Yes, you were predestined to be adopted into God's family, but now that you are in his family, as a son or daughter of God, you must learn to imitate him, to copy him, to be like your daddy, and to let Jesus, your brother, show you the way and let the Spirit help you get there. Now, you hear these kinds of rules, you hear this kind of sermon, and if you're like me, you think, whew, I have really blown it along the way. Will it ever stop? What else have I done wrong? And what happens if I have not used my mouth or my hands or my heart the way the Spirit of God has called me to? What happens if I break the rules of my father's house? What happens if I don't imitate God as I should? What happens if I grieve the Holy Spirit and make him sad because of all the things that I've done against his word and his will? Is the father going to kick me out of his house? Is he going to beat me down? Is he going to yell at me? Is he going to put me on the street? Is he going to keep me from coming to the table? What's going to happen to me? And the gospel of grace says, no, the Father is going to love you. He's going to draw you in close. He's going to listen to where you failed. He's going to try to help you do the right thing. He's going to teach you better. He's going to welcome you to his table because you need grace to help you do the right things. He's going to continue loving you and forgiving you. Why? Because in Christ, he has already forgiven you. He has already expressed his grace freely towards you. And it is the confidence and the comfort that we have from God's grace that draws us back into the house of God again and again and again. As often as we stumble, as often as we struggle, the Lord our God receives us for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? I mean, what a father, what a dad that lets you come home again and again. So we come back because he loves us. 
And he calls us home. He pulls us close. He binds our wounds. He helps us become like Jesus, to be holy and blameless in his sight. And he sends his spirit to us again and again to show us the right way to use our mouths, our hands, and our hearts. And why does he do it? He does it because the Father is on your side. And Jesus loves you. And the Spirit is your helper. And God is relentless in his pursuit of you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.